So one of the three timestamps in Zechariah comes first. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets called out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my slaves, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they returned and said, As Yahweh of hosts has purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so uh, he has done with us. Uh, last week in uh, our introduction, uh, quickly we looked at uh, Zechariah's name. It means one who Yahweh remembers. We looked at his line and his age. He came from a priestly line. Edo was mentioned in uh, uh, Nehemiah uh, 12, uh, verse 4, as a prophet, uh, as a priest, rather. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of Zechariah said he was a young man. Uh, we discussed a, a technical difficulty that the, uh, the, the writers and commentators bring up about the death of uh, uh, prophet Zechariah, who was the son of uh, Jehoiada, roughly 200 years earlier, and Jesus mentioning the son of uh, uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah in uh, Matthew. Uh, we looked at the time. There's three timestamps in the prophecy, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 7, uh, verse 1. I, I mentioned to you that the One Study Bible says there are 14 different themes. Uh, I uh, thought that was hard since there's only 14 chapters, but they, they uh, organized it like that. But uh, we'll see things concerning the temple, God's faithfulness, the people's sins, the Messiah, uh, prophetic fulfillment, and then uh, final victory. Uh, uh, the outline, uh, the outline, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, is the first exhortation. It's the primary exhortation and, and really dictates to the rest of the, the book. Uh, nothing can be done unless God's people are right with their God. That's the, the whole idea. The temple is not going to get fixed. He's not going to bless them. Uh, and we, we'll bring that up a, a little bit today. Uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 to the end of chapter uh, 6 is eight visions and uh, what one of the uh, uh, books calls a sign act. So there's eight visions where he says, I saw this, and then there's something that he sees that is um, like a sign of what's going to come concerning uh, Joshua the priest. Chapter 7 and 8, uh, it's a kind of conventional prophecy. It's just exhortation uh, uh, about different things. Chapter 9 through 11 is uh, oracles of judgment and, and then uh, uh, oracles of the future in chapter 12 to the, to the end. Uh, we did end with... Uh, uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14, and the repetition of on that day, on that day. There are 16 different times that God says uh, on that day or at that time uh, what I'm going to do. So the, the overwhelming, uh, the overwhelming uh, 
point of the prophecy is that God's going to do his work and complete all his work. We ended with uh, the petition in the Lord's Prayer, uh, as, uh, as on earth and uh, so also in heaven. And we said that prayer is going to be answered because God will complete all his work in heaven and in earth. So new material then. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think of uh, that gentleman, Bob Ross, who does paintings on, uh, on television. Because uh, uh, sometimes uh, prophecies are like that. He, he, he picks up his color and he starts going like this. And you're like, what's that? It looks like seagulls with no wings or, you know, you don't know what he's saying. And then he does another thing and then he does another thing. And then after a while you say, well, oh, those are clouds and they look exactly like clouds. Or he starts in another place and he's doing all this, doing all that. And you're like, what is that? And then eventually you say, oh, those are trees and they really look like trees. Uh, sometimes prophecy and sometimes visions and sometimes what God is saying is like that. You have to wait and see after all the small strokes are filled in. And then you say, oh, I see what's going on. Uh, and uh, uh, that, is, uh, that is how this uh, struck me. We see familiar prophetic words. We see familiar things. When the guy's done, you say, oh, big deal. There's sky, there's mountain, there's trees, and there's water. I see that all day long. You see, so, uh, so sometimes that is how things are. They're hidden, uh, but not revealed. Uh, Zechariah is a prophecy that shows what God has done already, but what God not, has not yet done. And all, a lot of the prophecies are like that. When we studied the day of the Lord, there's still a day of the Lord coming. And, and we know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, I, I'd like to just stop for a, a, a moment. Something else that the, the Lord does in these things is that uh, anytime God's people are in exile, the, the person in exile sees visions. It's just something that it's just something that's uh, that's biblical. Nobody sees visions, it seems like, unless they're in exile. So uh, you would say, well, exile—that's that's the worst. That's the darkest of times for God's people, exactly. But Daniel's in exile in Babylon, and and he starts to see visions and interpret dreams of somebody else, which is very interesting. And. Uh, Ezekiel is in exile in, in Babylon, and he has many, many visions and all these different things that happen and fills in different pieces of, of other visions and things. John in Revelation is in exile on Patmos, and you, you would say, well, that's the darkest of times because what's happening? Christianity has started to expand, but the worst kind of persecutions are happening to Christians. Well, what's happening to the church? It's dark times. The last apostle, the last apostle is stuck on an island out in the middle of nowhere. And God starts to talk to him uh, in visions. There's hope in persecution. Uh, Zechariah is back from exile and he opens his ministry with a series of, of visions. Uh, they're interpretive visions and they, they talk about what God's going to do. And so uh, I'd like to just discuss that and, and take a look at it, and why would God do that? Well, first of all, it's for the uh, protection from enemies, because God's enemies uh, look at 
visions of prophets and things different uh, than we would. Can you imagine the enemies that just stopped the building of the temple? The t people came back, they started building the temple, and they said, no, we're going to send back to the, to the king, and we're going to say, you don't want these Jews building the temple. They're, they're not going to pay tribute. They, they don't follow your gods. They don't do anything. And what happens? The building stops. And then Darius says, no, I looked it up, and, and they can do it. So now Zechariah comes back. The first thing that he sees in his ministry is a bunch of visions. What, is a, what do unbelievers and, and unbelieving rulers and kings think of somebody who comes back and sees visions? But they mean something to God's people. That's the point. Well, you say, I don't understand it. Well, that's why they're interpreted. Daniel is used in the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar by speaking to Nebuchadnezzar about all these kingdoms. Gold and brass and mixed and this and that, and here comes this little stone and it's going to knock them all down and literally charts out the rest of history to Christ's kingdom through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. But God's people understand because what's the interpretation? The angel comes and says, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. And then there's going to be a kingdom that comes and there's not going to be any end to it. And anybody who understands uh, uh, scripture knows, well, God is eternal. So a, a kingdom that's going to be eternal must be connected with God because he's eternal. Uh, uh, John's letter, John's letter, you imagine, you imagine trying to mail the book of Revelation. Here, here's this old man. Here's this old man. He's got this letter. I need you to take these parchments. I need you to send them out to these churches. What's in them? Turn to the first chapter. What? He sees somebody that's got this brass thing and his eyes are burning and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll send it along. Unbelievers don't see the same thing, but God protects, God protects his people in that, doesn't he? And then seven churches get letters, and we just heard them again. One guy. Now, if they opened that scroll, and it said God's going to destroy Caesar, and all the Romans are going to die, and he's going to wipe everybody out, what would they do? They'd rip it up. They'd never get off the island. Nobody goes against Caesar. As a matter of fact, John, Caesar is God. Your God is nothing. Caesar is God. Didn't you know that? So God protects his people. Another thing that, the, that God does always is hides his word and his purposes according to his plan. And that is in reference to judgment and salvation. God is sovereign in upholding the universe, and God is sovereign in the fact that his word does what he says it's going to do. And he has the right and demonstrates the right to hide it from some people and reveal it to other people. So that's another point. Visions of what? What are they visions of? What are they parables of? We'll talk about the parables. They're... they're they're visions of judgment and salvation. They're parables of judgment and salvation. 
Jesus as God was the only one that spoke the parables. He's the only one that had the right to speak parables and then to say, I hide these words from some people and I reveal them to another people because he sovereignly was God on earth. He sovereignly was the Lord. Isaiah sees the vision of God. He says, he says, I'm overwhelmed. I dwell with sinful people. But then God asked the question, who are we going to send? And he says, here I am. What's my ministry? And God says, you're going to go so that people will see and not perceive. And they'll see and they won't understand. And their heart will be made dull and their ears heavy and they'll blind their eyes. What kind of ministry is that? It's God's sovereign ministry of judgment and salvation of others in the midst of judgment. Uh, this passage is repeated as a fulfillment of prophecy six times in the New Testament. All the Gospels, Acts, and Romans. Acts ends with this prophecy. That all this ministry that Paul did, it only resulted in judgment or salvation. And made people more blind. Jesus, the, the great teacher of parables, t tells the disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. There's a summary verse that says to the crowd he spoke parables, but he interpreted everything to the disciples. He goes on to tell them uh, that the, the hiding and the revealing is not by mistake. To you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. That's what the point is. It's judgment and salvation. So God not only protects his people, but he hides his words and purposes from unbelievers and from whoever uh, he desires. And then, finally, God uses spiritual, cryptic words that are interpreted to help his people understand his purposes. And that is spiritual light in dark times. All of the exiles is the darkest times in the people's history. The fact that the last apostle is stuck on an island in the middle of nowhere, that's dark. That's persecution. He says, I was on the island because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. We don't want you walking around in Asia Minor. We don't want you walking around in Galilee. We're going to stick you on an island so you can't reach people with your gospel. That's what they wanted. And God hides the letter, and the letter goes off 22 chapters. We have chapters of amazing prophecy for God's people. And then, how does Revelation start? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And you say, wait a minute. It doesn't matter if somebody reads it out loud. It doesn't matter if I read it. I still don't understand it. Well, you have to think in broad categories. We think in broad categories that nobody else understands. What about creation? Do you see creation in the scriptures that other people do not? Oh, evolution. That's a proven fact. Proven fact. I've been told that over and over again. What about miracles? Oh, they, uh, no, no, they never happened. When Jesus fed the 5,000, I've heard, he, he had a store of food and fish that was already up there. 
What about the flood? Noah's flood and flood geology. Oh, no, 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 no. What about judgment for sin? What about Jesus and his entire ministry? I was studying the seven words on the cross. Uh, just this morning I looked them up. And there was a note about a liberal commentator who said Jesus could only have said one of those, not all seven. Did they believe anything about Jesus? Did they believe anything about his sacrifice or prayer or God's sovereignty or salvation from personal sin or heaven or hell, etc., etc., etc.? But when we look at the first vision of Zechariah and it says he sees horses and they say we've gone out all through the earth to see what's going on, right away you know that God is omniscient. You know that God is the only one that can see throughout the whole world and tell you what's going on. But they don't believe that. What kind of prophet is he? He comes and sees one horse is red, one's white, and this, boy, what is he talking about? The rest of the interpretation is that God's going to restore. God's plans are not going to fail. That's what the horse is meant? Yeah, that's what it is. The next vision after that is four horns come and destroy God's people. Horns represent nations and powers. Revelation, Daniel, wherever it is. And what do they do? They come and they destroy people. And then God says, sends four craftsmen or four carpenters. And they put it all back together. No, I, can't, I don't know exactly who they are. Are they Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah? Could be, doesn't say. But what's the, what's the bottom line message to you and me? That God is going to restore things, isn't it? We understand that. That's biblical. You take devastation. You can take exile. You can take judgment on your choice people. And you can turn it into something that people turn around and give glory to God. That's the whole thing. The book of Revelation is you just hang in there. You persevere. If you got ears to hear, you hear. Because it doesn't matter if it's a dragon or a beast or a prostitute, or anything else. The bottom line is God is going to destroy them all, and his people are going to be saved. And only you and I know that. Only believers know that. Only believers understand that. And we have to say, Lord, I don't care if I sit down and I don't understand Revelation. I see broad strokes. All these little things I don't understand. But when it's all done, what do I see? I see sky, I see trees, I see water, and I see mountains as clear as day. And, and that's what it's all about. And for some reason, God mysteriously hides these things when his people are in exile. Major themes of repentance, restoration, the already and the not yet, the city, the temple, the people of God, cleansing from sin, and especially the Messiah are just all over uh, the book of Zechariah. And, and that's what we're going to see. They're vividly portrayed. Remember in the, uh, in the introduction, it, uh, uh, one of the writers said that Zechariah is deeply mined for quotes in the New Testament. And we, we mentioned those. What do people say about prophecy? You, you talk to somebody about the Bible, you say, look, uh, what about fulfilled prophecy? 600 years later, things happened exactly like the Bible said. Oh, no, 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 no. Right? I was told, no, th these guys got together. 
So they said, well, let's come up with uh, th this verse where he comes in with a, on a donkey. Let's come up with something that talks about a donkey. Let's write something else. Luke, what are you writing about? Oh, I'll, I'll write about something else. It's all contrived, but, but brethren, we know it's not contrived. So that is the end of the introduction to Zechariah. Here's repentance and restoration in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. The word of Yahweh to Zechariah. He's identified as a prophet. He's the mouthpiece of Yahweh. And here comes the message. Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. Now we don't we don't have a way in English to express this. The Hebrew literally is four words. Angry, Yahweh with your fathers, angry. That's it. Uh, when Adam is told you will surely die, the Hebrew says dying you will die. It it's it's just doubled. That was their idiom. That's the way they said it. We would say uh, very, you will surely die, or God was very angry. A, a literal translation could be, angry was Yahweh with anger against your fathers. But, but we don't talk that way, so an older, an older version, wrath was Yahweh with your fathers, he was wroth. It's emphasized. That is the, that is the opening words uh, of Zechariah's prophecy. And the, the question that we should always ask is, what do we do with the anger of God? As disobedient people ourselves, what do we do with the anger of God? The English, he was very angry, very wrathful. Uh, one of the versions has sore displeased. I just, I don't think that that reaches the, the, the power of the anger. Very angry, very wrathful. But then there's the, the object. It's interesting because... This is the, the object is comprehensive. It says, your fathers. Now, if I was teaching or preaching here and I said, your fathers sinned against God. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Do I know all your fathers? Do I know their disposition? Do I know whether they serve the Lord or not? Do I know whether they believers? But that's what, that's what Zechariah is putting out there. And he's going to buttress it by saying... Uh, what God did. Uh, but it's your fathers, your own relatives, your father, forefathers, your nation. And that's what he's saying. Then there's the undeniable results. He was very angry, but now there's undeniable results that because wrath was executed. Zechariah isn't saying God's got this anger and it's just, it's just, it's up there and it hasn't been executed yet. This has been poured out on the people. Almost all the minor prophets that we've studied, that's where it is. It's up here. It's just ready to be uh, unleashed. But now it's unleashed. We started with prophets that spoke against Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone. We moved to later prophets that spoke against Judah. Judah is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. The countryside is wiped out. So the God's wrath was executed by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, 
by many other incursions, defeats, and demonstrations. I'm just reading uh, Joshua into Judges. Joshua dies, and some other people die, and they turn away from the Lord right away. There's not even a generation of people, although it does say they that did not know the Lord. Something didn't get transferred. And before Judges chapter 1 and 2 is over, they're just being attacked by all these other people. And they're crying out to God, and God has pity on them in, in their misery. You say, what a loving God, but he doesn't mess around. Look at the current situa situation. There's, there's no walls. The temple is just uh, partially, the countryside is wiped out. All the other cities, uh, mostly, are, are completely wiped out. There's displacement of people. You remember, there's a few verses that, that say, well, we'll take these people and push them over there, and we'll take other people we captured and put them in there. And that's literally what they did. Oh, you and your wife, you're not going to live in this house anymore. We're going to put these other people here. Well, what about my stuff? Bye-bye. You're done. You're gone. You're in exile. But we put somebody else there. We break up this whole country completely. What about your fields? It, they actually took time to throw salt on them or take all the rocks that they had separated so they could plow and throw them back. Now what are we going to do? You have to start all over. That's the point. We, you're conquered. You start all over. We'll take all your stuff and then leave you with that. That's what's going on. All those warnings. And now there's no need for further proof that God was very angry with your fathers. Jeremiah says, Thus says Yahweh, What injustice did your fathers find in me? Because... We see it on our own hearts. We treat God much worse than he deserves to be treated. And the question is, what injustice did they find? Did they ever find a reason where they could say, you did something to me, God, and now I'm doing something to you? I, I saw a uh, documentary that w one time about one of these mob informants. He rose up in all these crime families and got connected. And then sooner or later, they find out, right, that law enforcement is not stupid. Goes to jail one time or court acquitted. Goes another time. And now his uh, organization and the bigger, big, big of guys are backing off on him. And he's not getting money. And they're taking this piece of the pie and that piece of the pie. And what happens? He gets ticked off. So the next time he goes to court, he says, you know what? I saw the Hillis family do this. And I saw Jack Lieberman do this. And he blew the whole thing apart. Because what? He felt injustice. But God says to the people, did, did I ever do any injustice? Did I ever treat you wrong? And the answer is no that they went far away from me and walked in empty, emptiness and became empty. Oh, I don't follow God anymore. Well, you're just walking in emptiness. If you don't have a close relationship with him, you're just walking in emptiness and you become empty. It's an appropriate, it's an appropriate view of the soul. 
I've been there in those times of unbelief and, and doubt. And, and before Christianity, just my life is empty. It's actually a word we use, empty. Because there's nothing there. There's nothing to hope for. There's nothing. All you see is the same junk. All you see is people around you that treat you just as bad as you want to treat them. Well, then, that's the statement. And then in a very structured section, Yahweh commands and inquires of his people. There's a, a format, you might say. Uh, verse 3 is a positive command with a result. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Verse 4 is a negative command. Do not be like your fathers. Verse 5 begins a series of questions to the middle of verse 6. And verse 6 speaks of some results. Hopefully we'll, excuse me, hopefully we'll get through it, but I doubt we will. Yahweh, first of all, asserts and underscores his authority. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, this legacy standard Bible that uses Yahweh, but if, if, you, if you see it, it's right there. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. We've, we've saw this before. Yahweh of hosts, you can't get more glorious than that. You can't have more power than that. I'm the God who delivers. I'm the God who saves. But I'm also the God of hosts. It doesn't matter where the hosts are. Heaven, earth, people, everything. Yahweh of hosts. It keeps coming over and over. It's emphasis on the name. It's emphasis on his power. And it's emphasis on the scope. Heaven, earth. If it's a military picture, somebody asked me, well, is that a military picture? Is it an army? It could be. But when he talks about hosts, it's everything. All power in all realms of heaven and earth and men. And Yahweh of hosts was mentioned 14 times in the four-month ministry of Haggai. And, and you, you, have to, you have to get a hold of it then, don't you? Why would you say the same thing 14 times in four months? Because you have to understand who's in control. You have to understand in the darkest time, in times of exile and in times of persecution, Yahweh of hosts is executing his will. One, one of the people who uh, was a, in charge, Nebuchadnezzar, learned this lesson. Daniel chapter 4, 34 and 35. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar said that. For his dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, collectively. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's a pagan king. That's the man who maybe a year and a half, 13, 14 months, 15 months before that, stood out on his porch and said, I'm the man. 
look at what I did. Look at what I built. And God said, no, I'm going to drive you out in the fields. You're going to be like a beast. And this is what he came. But notice, notice what's pouring out of the guy. First of all, first of all, you might ask, well, what seminary did he go to? What's pouring out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth? First of all, it's, it's worship. It's worship. Not, not disconnected worship like we have in our day. Not we just worship to worship and the louder it is and the more spectacular it is and then that's real worship. And somebody told me that. Oh yeah, you worship, but I go someplace that really worships. But all they meant was it's louder and it's more bombastic and you got the whole bunch of people up there doing that stuff. It's never disconnected from the character of God. And if it is, it is not worship at all. Nebuchadnezzar says worship names, blessed, praised, and honored. Who's here to bless the Lord today? That's baloney. Because he goes on to say, and he understands the doctrine of God. He is the Most High. He lives forever from generation to generation. He is eternal. He is immense. He is active. He does according to his will. Where? Everywhere. In heaven and in earth. Oh, well. God can only do what man allows him to do. That is a lie. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and on earth. And nobody can stop his hand or say to him, what are you doing or what do you have done? And that's where true worship comes from. When you understand who God really is. And if you see three times in your Bible, in one verse, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, you understand the posture that we should have. And God converted a pagan king who one time stood on his porch and said, I'm the one that did all this. And a year later, 15 months later, he said, no, God is the one that did all this. But notice, he understands who God is. He understands God's being. He understands God's power. He understands his immensity. He understands his eternity. He understands that God acts without restriction from anybody. You, you cross the line into deism if you don't assert that. Because the deist says, yeah, there's a God, but he really, he's really not active here. And there are people that go around preaching to other people that say, God can't do anything unless men let him do it. That is a lie. That is false teaching. It's there for us to know that God is always working out his purposes. The people are in exile and their king is converted. How, how does that work out? The book of Daniel talks about how many people? Three. Well, we held all these evangelistic services and eventually... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar raised his hand and came forward. No. God broke his heart down and subdued every bit of that pride and then put something in. That's important. 
Oh, I'm so humble before the Lord. Oh, yeah, do you really know who he is? He put something in. He put that testimony in. Yahweh of hosts did this. Yahweh of hosts did this. And do you know what? There's nobody that can do what he does because he does whatever he wants to do. And then here's the positive, the, the command and the promise. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And here's it's doubled. Remember, angry with your fathers with anger. And here's this, return to me and I'll return to you. Doubled. There's a few things here that are doubled. Return is doubled that it may echo the anger doubled. If you're not in the right spiritual condition, nothing is going to happen. You remember Haggai. He said, consider your ways, encouragement and promise. But then what did he say? How come you don't have enough crops? How come you don't have this? How come you don't have that? How come you're always lacking? It's because you haven't completely returned to me. The consequences, God said, was the heavens withheld, right? The heavens can't do it. God withheld the heavens. God called for drought. You went to look for 20 measures of, of, uh, of grain. There was only 10. And, and he says, I struck you. He did it. Consider from this day onward, he said, consider your ways from this day onward. The pre-exilic prophets, they were exactly the same. There were dozens of exhortations and promises to the, to the sinning people. Isaiah 31, 6, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Yahweh uses many calls to uh, uh, call us back and call his people back. Malachi 3, 7, our, our last prophet has a verse almost exactly the same restoration promises are always there but repentance has to come first jeremiah 12 15 after i have plucked them up i will again have compassion on them this process is going to take place this is yahweh's process executed by god's power in elijah's time Elijah has a man view. How many, how many believers are left? How many people have not bowed their knee to, to Baal? What's, what's Elijah's view? How many? Only one person. I'm the only one left, he says. Well, God says, no, there's 7,000. God's power is always exercised to preserve a remnant of his people. Uh, Paul understands it uh, uh, based on... A, a contrast it looks like we'll we'll, we'll end up uh, uh, finishing with this uh, in uh, Romans 9 uh, 6 through 8 but it is not as though the word of God has failed we know it can't ever fail for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed but through Isaac your seed will be named that is the children of the flesh are not the children of God but the children of the promise are considered as the seed. So just because I'm Jewish, it doesn't mean I'm converted. Remember, we studied passages that, that said that. But notice how much God's power has to be used. Romans 9, 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the land thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us to a seed 
we would have become like Sodom and have resembled Gomorrah. If God didn't have mercy on Israel and didn't have mercy on us, how many people would be left? Zero. You'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. How many people were left after that? None. That's God's mercy. That's God's power. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and, and earth, and none can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? Do you, do you see now how the, ex, the exile things fit in? He hides and reveals, hides and reveals, hides and reveals, but it's the power of his word at the last that's doing all the work. The, the, um, the, the Pharisees had it all wrong, right? John chapter 8. I'm sorry, but, you know, we're, we're right there. We've got to finish. But what did they say? We are the offspring of Abraham. And a few verses later said, Jesus said, if you really were, then you would do what Abraham did. They were like, what? Well, you would believe. Because it's not just the sands of the sea. It's not just the fact that you're Jewish. It's not just the, any of those things. It, it, it's, it's the people that God saves. So that, that is an encouragement as, as we see in this exhortation what God is trying to do. Re return to me and I'll return to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these things. It, it, it seems like time has swept by us today, but uh, we pray that we would truly believe uh, what the scripture says about you in our hearts, and we know that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's first words were words of worship, and we pray that our words today would be words of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.